Hey, good to be with you all. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and just a special welcome to you. If you're new with us today, so glad that you've chosen to join us. Uh, as DJ mentioned, please make sure you stop by the Welcome Center and grab a free gift and let us know you were here. Also, before I start, I just want to give a shout out to our volunteers this morning. Um, if you've just shown up and, and you've kind of walked through the doors and you're like, man, this is a great place to be on Sunday morning, you need to know that there is an army of volunteers making all of this happen every Sunday morning. And they're cutting bananas and strawberries and making coffee. They're, you know, making slides and putting, you know, figuring out the live stream and doing music. And yeah. Some of you dropped your kids off uh, with our kids, uh, with our volunteers in our kids' room, and they are just amazing. And here's what I want you to know, too. You could be one. You could be a volunteer. You could be a part of what God is doing here in and through this church. So if you want to, and you're like, I don't even know where to start, just talk to us. Go to the Welcome Center. Figure out where you might be able to fit in. It's just an amazing thing to be a part of. I just, every Sunday morning, I'm just in awe of how uh, a gifted and just the servant hearts that go along with helping make Sundays happen here at Genesis. Well, um, as DJ mentioned, we are back in the book of Acts today. And as I was studying this passage, I was reminded of one of my all-time favorite books. And the book is called Ghost Soldiers. It was written by Hampton Sides, who is a historical writer. And it chronicles one of the greatest uh, rescue missions in all of American war history. On January 28, 1945, 121 hand-selected troops traveled 30 miles behind enemy lines to rescue more than 500 prisoners at a Philippine war camp. All of them were eventually, all of those who were prisoners were a part of what eventually would be named the Bataan Death March, which was a march that happened three years prior to their imprisonment when they were captured by the Japanese army. And tens of thousands of American and Allied soldiers were marched 65 miles to this camp. No food, no water, no care. Thousands died on their way to this march. After the prisoners had suffered years of torture and neglect, the U.S. Army finally devised this plan to go and to rescue them. Led by Captain Robert Prince, they traveled, as I mentioned, 30 miles behind enemy lines to free any and all remaining U.S. prisoners. What's even more amazing is that after they freed them, they surprised the Japanese army, they freed all 500, they then traveled the 30 miles behind enemy lines back to American lines with 500, you know, neglected, impoverished soldiers. All of them made it back. Now, I read this book, Ghost Soldiers, back in 2002. I was just a young pup then, just a young guy. I was living in Lake Tahoe. I had long hair, had earrings, whole deal. And I was way too loud of a laugh about that, but it's it's true situation. And so after finishing the book one night, I was just so captured by this story. I hopped on my computer and I searched to see if I could find the leading uh, a person in the assault on that war camp, Captain Robert Prince. Now, I, I was, as I moved, moved by his leadership, his courage throughout the story, and I wanted to just, you know, write him a letter. I wanted to thank him. And so you got to keep in mind, this is long before social media. Google was just like something in a, like, closet, you know, in 2002. And so I really had to look 
for how I was going to find. And I did. I found Captain Robert Prince's address, and I wrote him a letter. He was living in Washington State at the time, and I wrote him a letter. And I thanked him for his service, his bravery under such intense circumstances, his willingness to put his life on the line to rescue so many other hundreds of soldiers. And I wasn't even sure if he was alive. I mean, keep in mind, this is decades after. Well, fortunately, I was to my surprise, I received a letter back from him. And uh, I had no expectation of such a thing. Now, unfortunately, after 20 years of moving around, I, I don't know where the letter went, and I regret that, but I can still remember something he said in the letter that just stuck with me. He said, we never thought of it as a rescue mission. We, we just thought of it as doing what we were always taught to do. Don't ever leave another man behind. How could you not think of this as a rescue mission? This is just what they were trained to do. It's what they had been called to do. This was just part of the job for them. And he went on to talk about the men he served alongside and the impact they had on his life. He then thanked me for the letter, and he wished me well. I recently saw that he had died in 2009. He was 89 years old. There is something so compelling about stories of rescue, isn't there? individuals risking everything against insurmountable odds to bring hope and healing and new a new lease on life, it can cause even the hardest-hearted person to stop and listen. We love stories of rescue. And as we continue in the book of Acts, the story that was written after Jesus' resurrection and ascension of the first church, this historical moments that were occurring, we we're going to see a man named Stephen, who we were introduced to a few weeks ago. He's going to tell one of the ultimate stories of rescue today. But he's not just telling it to remind his listeners of this story. He's also telling this story to point to an even greater rescue that has happened for all people for all time. So with all that in mind, go ahead. If you brought it, grab your Bible, or you can open up to the YouVersion app in your phone and turn to Acts chapter 7. And as you do, let me just give you just a brief background on what is about to happen here and what's been happening up to this point. So at this point in the story of Acts, Stephen is on trial for false accusations against him. He's been newly appointed to help with the daily administration of food and, and resources to those a part of the first church. And he gets into a conversation with some people, and it kind of goes south. They don't like what he's saying, and so they hire some other people to accuse Stephen of speaking against two of the most important symbols in all of the Jewish faith at the time, the Torah and the temple. And so now he stands before this high council, also known as the Sanhedrin, who are composed of Jewish leaders and and, and you know, debutantes of the time, and he defends himself. He defends himself for what has been accused of. And so last week we looked at how he starts his defense. In the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 7, Stephen points the high council back to the original covenant established by God with Abraham in Genesis 17. He wants there to be no doubt in their minds that he is no stranger to the Torah, which he's been accused of, and the Old Testament story. In addition, Stephen is setting up the high council, right? His defense isn't that he has stopped believing in this covenant that was established by God in Genesis 17. His defense is that it has now been fulfilled 
in the person of Jesus. And he's going to get to that. And as he continues in Acts chapter 7, Stephen turns his attention away from Abraham and the covenant that God established with them, that covenant relationship, that commitment of God to say, I will be your God and you will be your, um, my people. And he turns from that and he turns back to the greatest hero of the Jewish faith, Moses. We pick it up in verse 17. Now we're going to read 19 verses. So hang in there, follow along. He wants them to know this story again. Here's what he starts. Verse 17, as the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Now remember, Joseph was the son of Jacob. There's a famine in Canaan and Jacob and, his bro- and, J- and Joseph's brothers, the 12 men that would eventually be called the 12 tribes of Israel, they end up in Egypt to be taken care of. And so Stephen says, now remember this, this happened. And then the number of Israelites, they started to multiply greatly. And then a new king came into power in Egypt. Verse 19, this king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, because, by the way, the Egyptians were killing young uh, boys and girls because they didn't want the population of the Israelites to get out of control. When they were forced to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Verse 22, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. Verse 26, the next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you're brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us, he asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look, which I think we can all relate to if God were to appear here in that sense today. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go for I'm sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the man, his man, His people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. I better take a deep breath. That was a lot. That was a lot. So here's, let's break it down a little bit. The Israelites lived in the land of Egypt long before Moses ever arrives on earth. 
for a while, it was great. Things went great. They had, they had all that they needed. They were able to worship God freely among the Egyptian people. They began to increase in number, and, and they began to make a name for themselves among the Egyptian people. But with the institution of a new pharaoh, a new king in Egypt, things change drastically for the Israelites, and they end up in slavery to the Egyptians. And it's during that time that Moses is born and abandoned for fear of becoming another child casualty under Pharaoh's rule. Now, ironically, he is found and picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's raised in Egyptian royalty. Everything that he'd ever want is at his fingertips. We're told that he learned, uh, he was great at, you know, being able to have conversations, he was, had great speech, and he was well cared for. But, but as, as he goes back to his Israeli people to see what's going on, he has this moment where he realizes, hey, this Egyptian's not treating this Israelite very well, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. And he knows this is bad news for him. So he flees. He leaves Egypt, and he goes to the land of Midian. Right? He, he's a fugitive on the run at this point. And it's then that God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush, an unlikely scenario, I know. And he tells Moses to go and rescue the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So after some kicking and screaming, if you know the story of Moses, you know he doesn't just, yeah, I'll do it. He's very afraid of what this means for him. He does agree and he goes back to Egypt as rejected as he may be, and he convinces Pharaoh to let millions of Israelite slaves free. They cross the Red Sea, and they eventually make it to the Promised Land 40 years later. And Stephen says this verse as he's telling this story that is really intentional, though. He says in verse 35, he said, God sent Moses to be their ruler, and what's the word? Savior. You see, through Moses this rejected ruler, leader, savior, God's people would be freed from the enslavement of the Egyptians. It would be through Moses that they would receive this thing that he's been accused of being speaking against, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Leviticus, or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It would be him that would eventually lead them to the land that they were promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. I mean, this is a great story. It's so unlikely. It has so much like controversy and suspension, suspense, right? Like, like Moses is the most unlikely guy to go back and free these people from the Egyptians. He just killed a man. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. Pharaoh wants him dead. And yet he's the one that's called to be their ruler and their savior. But why? Why is Stephen telling this story? I mean, he's on trial for his life right now. Why is he telling the high council a story they're already well-versed in? They know the story of Moses. It's the most told story in all of Jewish religion. Well, there's two reasons for this. And the first is the most obvious, which again is that Stephen's been accused of speaking against the Torah, the law, the story of God's people becoming God's people. It's one of the false accusations against him. And so by telling this story and the story of Abraham earlier, Stephen is advocating his innocence 
against these charges. He's making sure the high council knows he's not just some quack from off the street that's been talking to people. He knows what's up. He knows the Torah. He knows the law. He knows the story of God. There's a second reason Stephen is telling this story. Because Stephen is slowly setting up a case for Jesus. We learned last week, and we will see it again this week, that Stephen is getting to the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God did prior to his arrival. All right, we're going to dig a little deep here, okay? So put your thinking cap on. We're going to do a little biblical theology, okay? Here's how this works. The Bible is a story. Now, it is composed of all sorts of different kinds of literature. But when you back away from it, it is a massive story of God and his interactions with his creation. In particular, it's the story of God's interaction with the pinnacle of his creation, You and me, all of us. The Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, tells the story of how God chooses to interact with humanity after sin enters the world. And the New Testament is the story of how God chooses to interact with humanity in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The New Testament tells the story of how Jesus took everything God did in the Old Testament and made it real and alive for all people for all time in him. This is what it means when I say, or when other people say, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God did in the Old Testament. What that means is that every story, every instruction, every poem, Wisdom writing and prophecy is now fully alive in its fullest form in Jesus. Here's how I think of it. If you want to know who God is and what God has done and what you mean to him, look no further than Jesus. Now, the Old Testament story will inform us about Jesus. It'll tell us all we need to know about Jesus. Because in his telling of the story of Moses, Stephen is slowly showing the high council that the story of Moses and the rescue of the Israelites from slavery has now fully been accomplished in Jesus. Stephen is slowly unraveling this truth that Jesus is the ultimate Moses for all people. Jesus is the ultimate Moses for all people. You know, the story of Moses is a real story that happened in real time in history, right? As such, Stephen and the leaders of the early church, they would never speak against what occurred or what's said in the Old Testament. But because of Jesus, they now, the first church and Stephen, view the stories and sayings of the Old Testament in a whole new way. They have come alive in an entirely new way. The story of Moses now isn't just a story about a guy in ancient Israel. The story of Moses is a whisper of something greater to come. And that something is what Stephen and thousands of other new believers have found in Jesus. In addition, the story of Moses and the Israelites, well, it's our story. It's not just their story. It's our story. Like Moses, Jesus was called on a rescue mission to go behind enemy lines and rescue those who are imprisoned, enslaved by sin. 
In our sin, we are the Israelites in Egypt under the control of the ruler of this world and without hope beyond where we are now. And the only way out is for a leader and a savior to come and rescue us. And so Jesus, the ultimate Moses, comes to our rescue. He defeats sin, death, and Satan through his life, death, and resurrection. And like Moses, he leads us out of the enslavement of sin into freedom in the life he has promised. These are all the thoughts going on in Stephen's head as he tells the story about Moses. This isn't just a story about Moses. And Stephen knows that. He's setting up the high council to eventually say, you know all those stories about covenant and rescue? They've been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The law is great, but it just points us to Jesus. That's why Stephen has placed everything, his hope, his faith, his life in the person of Jesus. Because everything that God did and everything that God has said is now fully available and alive in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes to our rescue. He defeats sin, death, and Satan through his life, death, and resurrection. And he sets us into freedom, into a new life. I love how the Apostle Paul, someone, by the way, who knew this theology really, really well. Most people don't realize the Apostle Paul spent 10 years in Arabia studying the scriptures developing his theology that we now read throughout the letters in the New Testament before he ever spoke a word about Jesus. Ten years. Paul knew this theology. And then he writes in Romans chapter 6, one of the final letters he writes, he writes this in verses 6 and 7. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Listen to this verse. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. In other words, in Jesus, we're offered the opportunity to leave Egypt. Like in our sin, we're the Israelites in Egypt, right? We're enslaved to our sin. We're stuck in our lives. Maybe you feel that way today. You feel stuck. And you know, like, something's broken inside of me. Something's, something's not quite right. And you, you recognize, man, I am stuck in this place where I'm enslaved to the sin in my life. And you desperately need to be led to freedom and forgiveness. And Stephen and Paul are saying, it's only found in Jesus. He's the ultimate Moses who leads us out of enslavement and into freedom. Now, there's so much more that could be said about this story, like how the Egyptians, you know, or excuse me, the Israelites start hoping they could go back to Egypt when things get a little tough, right? Like, or how, you know, they were free, but they continued to allow sin to get the best of them as they traveled through the desert. There's all sorts of things that, and, you know, comparisons between what happens in our lives and their lives. But there is, you know, no time for all that today. What I want you to hear more than anything else about this story is this, that Jesus the ultimate Moses came to rescue you from your enslavement to sin. You do not have to live this way any longer. That shame, that uneasiness, 
that anxiety, that sin that just entangles you over and over and over again, the promise of Jesus is that you do not have to live that way anymore. You may be stuck in Egypt, but guess what? God, like Moses, sent Jesus to be your leader and savior, to free you, to walk you out of enslavement to sin and into freedom of new life. He came to rescue you, and he came to rescue me and everyone around us from the thing that is keeping us from experiencing life as it was intended. Every problem, do you know this? Every problem, personally or socially, that we run into is the result of our enslavement to sin. Oppression, war, racism, sexual abuse, greed, hatred, violence, broken relationships, the list could go on and on and on and on. All of them are the direct result of us being enslaved, controlled by sin, a rebellion against God. When we're under that power and under that control, that's what comes out of us. But Jesus, like Moses, calls us out of that slavery and into a new way of living. He says, you don't have to live that way anymore. Come, follow me, and I will give you abundant life. I will give you the life that you've always been looking for. doesn't look like it in, when you're you know, in Egypt. It looks totally different. But come, follow me, and I will show you that life. This is the way that God wanted it from the very beginning. He wanted us to be called out into a new life of, of, of hope and justice and humility and generosity and love. This was the purpose in calling Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt to be a community of people rooted and controlled by love and faith and hope. And in Jesus, he is fulfilling that dream of his. He is rescuing people from a life of slavery to sin and into a life of control by the Spirit. And in doing so, he is in the process, and this is what Stephen and these new believers are doing. He is in the process of continuing to form this new community of people who are rooted and controlled not by sin, but by faith, love, and hope, by the Spirit's power. They are becoming a community of changed lives for the purpose of changing the lives of others. Sound familiar? If you hang out with us long enough, you'll know that that is the dream of this church. We want to be that kind of community. The kind of community Stephen is pointing to as he speaks of Moses before the high council. We want to be a community who've been changed because of the rescuing power of Jesus and who will do anything short of sin to help other people experience that same change in their lives. You'll see it out on the walls. You'll hear me talk about it, that we want to be a community of changed lives, changing lives. And that's what Stephen is getting at. You know, this story of Moses, it is a great story, but it means nothing without Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and because of that, he is now here and has come and has died and resurrected and ascended to heaven to rescue people from the enslavement they feel to sin. You know, there are some of you in this room today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're, you're still living under the control of sin. You're recognizing right now that sin has a hold on you right now. 
And I'm here to tell you, like Captain Robert Prince did in the Philippines in 1945, Jesus came on a rescue mission for you. That's why he came. He, he went behind enemy lines to free you from the prison you've been living in and bring in, you into a new way of living that will forever change you and generations to come. You know what ha didn't happen when uh, Captain Prince and the U.S. Army Rangers opened the doors of the prison in Philippines to free those who were in prison? Do you know what didn't happen? There was nobody there that day that said, you know what, I'm good. I'm fine. I, this is actually not bad, you know? Like this prison with no food and water, uh, I'm okay. I haven't taken a shower in six years, but I'm good. I'm good, right? Nobody said that. Why didn't they say that? Because they were being offered a new lease on life. No longer did they have to be enslaved in this place that was bogging them down where life couldn't truly be lived but instead they were given a new way of living. And all Robert Prince was said is, just come follow me, man, and I will take you to new freedom. I know where it is. And every last one of them followed him out of the prison and into a new life. This is the same story that the Bible tells us. Can I just submit to you today that staying where you are, controlled and dominated by sin, is a lot like a prisoner choosing to stay in an enemy prison. He's come for you. Out of love, he has come to set you free from that. And all you have to do is follow him. To say, okay, I, I, I'll, follow, I'll, I'll step in line with you. I will follow your footsteps. I, I will read the scriptures. I will see how you are the fulfillment of everything that God has done. I will see how God has chosen, you know, to love this creation, to love his people, and to call people into new freedom, into new life. That's what I'm going to do. And Jesus says, yes, just come and follow me. To believe that he did what he did through his death and his resurrection, to, to, to eradicate sin and death and Satan and to give you the hope of a new life, to free you of your enslavement to sin and to lead you into a life that goes on forever and ever and ever. This is the promise. This is the promise of the New Testament. This is the promise of the church. And I'm sorry if you've been told any other promise but this is the promise. I am here to tell you today, it does not matter what you have done in your past. It does not matter who you have become up until this point. It doesn't matter what next step you're going to take. Here's the truth. Jesus came to rescue you. That that burden that you feel of sin eating away at your soul and your heart and mind, it does not have to be that way. That Jesus is standing at the gates of the prison saying, come follow me and I will lead you to a new way of life. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. And you know what? Sin's going to try and grab you back into that prison. Some of you know that. It's going to try and lead you right back. And every time, Jesus is going to say again, come, follow me. Follow me. Experience the life changed by my love, changed by my passion for you. You don't have to live this way any longer. Jesus is the ultimate Moses that came to rescue us. And my invitation to you this morning is to place your whole faith, your whole life, 
in him. You will not regret that decision. I've been following Jesus since I was eight years old. And you know, at eight years old, I didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody told me all this. I just knew like, this is, I want to be wherever that guy is. <laughs> That's where I want to be. And, I, and you know what? Like that prison has pulled me back in at times. And I've looked up and I've seen Jesus saying, come follow me. And I've followed him again. And that invitation has never let me down. And you are sitting and you are surrounded by people who can confess the same thing. That that invitation to follow him, the rescuer of our lives, never lets you down. And so my invitation to you today is to place your faith, your whole faith, all of you in him and to follow him this morning. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. Let's pray. God, I'm just in such awe as I read the story and the words of Stephen and the early church. You know, I think we, we have the benefit of hindsight, looking back, reading this story thousands of years later and recognizing, oh man, look at how God worked through that. But the reality is, is that in the moment when Stephen is telling all of this stuff, he doesn't know what's next. He, he doesn't know that his life is completely and totally on the line. He doesn't know how this story is going to end. And I'm just in, in awe of his commitment to you because he knew, look, everything that God has done in this world, it is fulfilled in Jesus. And he gave everything to follow him. And so this morning, I just, I offer this community to you. And I ask God, as individuals and corporately, that you would, by your spirit, speak loudly to us again to remind us that you have come to rescue us from enslavement to sin, that thing that just burdens us down and gives us pain and agony and shame, and that we would hear and see you at the gates of that prison saying to us with compassion and love, come, follow me. If you are here today and you hear the Spirit calling out to you, if you see Jesus calling you into that new relationship to come follow me, you say yes to that. Some of you have been pulled back into that place of darkness. You've been enslaved again to sin and I'm telling you, Jesus is there as he always has been saying, come follow me. You step in line with him. We say yes again. I'm in awe, God, of your relentless love of us. You never give up. That love always remains. And so this morning we run to you. We ask for your forgiveness. We, we, we thank you for your compassion and your grace and your mercy and your love to receive us again and again and again say yes to you. Yes, I will follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.